Welcome to today's episode of A Slice of Medieval. We're joined by best-selling author Anne O'Brien. Anne's last two books, The Royal Game and A Marriage of Fortune, tell the stories of the Pastons, a family whose incredible collection of correspondence sheds a light on the late 15th century and the Wars of the Roses. So when Derek and I decided to do an episode on this prolific letter-writing family, who else would we ask but Anne O'Brien? Welcome, Anne. Thank you very much. I'm very pleased to be with you. Thank you. It's lovely to have you. And as I say, it was, oh, if we do the Pastons, who can we ask? And I was like, I know Brian's just done two books about them. She'd be great. Thank you. That's very flattering. (laughs) (laughs) So for those listeners who may not have heard of the Pastons, tell us a little about the family. Well, they were the famous... 15th century letter writing family from Norfolk and anyone who reads about the Wars of the Roses has to come across them because they are cited as uh, giving information about them. In 1735 the family papers came into public ownership because the the heir died without a descendant. He was William Paston Earl of Yarmouth and within it there was a cache of documents and within that was the Paston letters. And they covered the whole of the 15th century, more or less, ending about 1509. And fortunately for us, they went into the hands of a local historian. So what did they tell us? It begins with Clement Paston. Now, he didn't write letters at all. He died in 1419 and he was little more than a peasant. He took his name from the place he lived, Paston, in Norfolk, and he had a small area of arable land and a small water mill with a little river by it, it's described. And he's just a good, plain husbandman. But two generations on, the Pastons were a family of means. They had a castle, and they were intent on rising even further. And they were writing, and that's the main point about it. So how did they do this? How did they change from being a a peasant-based family to being uh, gentry? Partly through education. The uh, sons of the family were sent to Cambridge and to the Inns of Court, and they learnt how to deal with the law, uh, and particularly all the cut and thrust of litigation and uh, legal problems. But I think far more important than that was the marriages they made. And the Paston women, those who married into the family, were far better born than their Paston uh, menfolk. Both Margaret Mortby and Agnes Berry were girls from uh, gentry families and they were the heiresses. So when they wed into the Paston family, they brought land, they brought good dowries and they bought connections with other gentry families. And so, of course, the the Paston men made the most of, uh, of these connections. So by the end of the century, 
the Pastons had earned their place at court. John Paston eventually was made a knight through his work for Henry VII. He fought for him at the Battle of Stoke. Uh, and as I said, they owned a castle. And it's all there in the letters. It's amazing. It, it, they're vibrant. They are very confrontational. They're exuberant. You can't do better than that. The sad thing is we have no idea what they look like. There are no portraits, even no physical descriptions from anybody. It's just their voices that are, are so loud and clear. The one problem for a novelist is so many of them are called John. <laughs> Margaret's husband... John and their two sons, the two eldest sons, were both called John. And history calls them simply John 1, John 2, and John 3. But a novelist can't do that. <laughs> a novelist has to be a bit more imaginative, uh, which I tried to be. But those are the Pastons, and they're the ones who wrote the letters. Okay, I think we'd all agree that to have such a cache of letters is, it's so revealing of, of, of a, a group, a family who. They're not nobles. And normally you hear about the marriages of the nobles and you understand that that's important, but you don't hear about the marriages of the, the classes below, which are relatively equally important to their to their status. Yes, that's right. It's this middling sort of, of, of group of people. And we just don't know for the most part. And if these uh, Paston letters had uh, gone the way of most correspondents, we wouldn't know anything about them either. So uh, how fortunate we were that uh, yes. a historian got his hands on them and saw their value. Yes, absolutely. Somebody didn't just put them on the fire. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah. What's your view about, and, and this isn't a question we put in, but just it occurred to me, do you think there were lots and lots of these sorts of family letters in existence and, the, and most just haven't survived or... Were the Pastons unusual, do you think? I think we've got to think that other families wrote in a similar way and they just have disappeared over the you know, the, the length of time. Um, surely um, more families. You see, the interesting thing of, about um, the main letter writers, the main letter writers were women and they didn't write their own letters for the most part. They dictated them to uh, the family priest or uh, the fam one of the family clerks, and they jotted it all down. And the women signed it at the end, usually themselves. But it's quite clear that they were, if you like, semi-literate. Perhaps they read better than they wrote. They were so keen on putting their thoughts down and their wishes down on paper and yeah. there must have been other families in a similar, similar situation. Mm. So perhaps there are more families out there. See, we know people read and wrote like um, Christine de Pisan and Margaret Kemp and the other famous ones, Julian of Norwich. Perhaps we misinterpret it because of the gaps we have yes. uh, and there'd be more pastimes mm. out there. And, and do you think, I mean, you've said that it's mainly the women that do the letter writing. Do you think that's likely to be a consistent thread throughout or or is it just that family? It's difficult. I think it might just be Margaret Paston. Mm. There were 421 letters in the, the cache and 107 of them were written by Margaret. Mm. A number of other women connections wrote and their letters are there too and the rest were of course written by her husband and her two elder sons the two johns but for this one woman to to write so many and perhaps it is a comment on her character and her place in the family 
she was the matriarch, the keystone. Uh, and my goodness, you get that impression from her letters. <laughs> we may not know her, but we can recognise her voice. Yes, I mean, I think even, dare I say it, today, when letter writing has almost sort of disappeared from uh, common usage, you still have people whose natural inclination is to reach out and talk to other people in some way, shape or form, whereas others don't. So I guess it is a character trait of sorts. Well, you also have that thing in families, don't you, where, I mean, that we had it when we were yes. students. I've got a brother and sister and all three of us had to report home on a Sunday. <laughs> I like it. <laughs> Sunday was just yes. phone and make sure that yes. you know you're all right. And I even had to do that when I was in France yeah. and that. So it's, it is that matriarchal thing of everybody has to report in. <laughs> yes, I know my mother was in touch with almost everybody in globally in the family, I literally globally, but her sons, sadly, have not been quite as good at... Uh, maintaining that i think the thing is we let mum do it and then when it comes to our turn it's like actually we don't know what we're supposed to be doing because mum had all the numbers yeah. <laughs> yes that's right yeah i think the other thing that was interesting was how intimate margaret was prepared to be in what she dictated uh, not just intimate in family relationships, but in um, the problems with their estates and uh, um, inheritance mm. and the whole thing. And she wrote the, the, the whole works of it and the priest wrote it down. Today, I think we'd be very careful about what we put on paper and what we told other people. Mm. Uh, but fortunately, she was very... Um, uh, determined to get her point across. And so we've got them. I've got to ask, actually, the book you wrote on Cecily Neville, the titles escape me at the minute, but you had Cecily and her sisters writing to each other. Did you have the past and letters in mind when you did that? Because I thought that was so well done. No, I didn't, actually. Um, it was a book that I started writing in a, a normal way, you know, mm. with, uh, looking at it first person in the past. And then I must have written about 100 pages or so. And I had to leave it um, because I had to copy edit for the, the previous book and, you know, all the sorts of things for my editors. And by the time I got back to it, I thought, oh, goodness, this is really same old, same old, mm. if you like. Mm. And with Cecily's voice and with her sisters, can I not do something different? And the only thing that came to mind was, well, make them write to each other. Mm. And it grew and so that in the end, everybody was writing to everybody else. And I realised it needed that some set pieces of emotional interest every now and then, with especially with high politics, mm. which mm. I put in as separate sections. But it just seemed to work so much better and to be far more interesting. And I know that everybody liked it because they couldn't get into the story. But for me at that time, I thought it was a the way to mm. go yeah I loved it I absolutely loved it I couldn't wait for the next letter I wasn't <laughs> bothered about the story I wanted these letters between the sisters and Anne telling yeah. Cecily off and the exchanges of um what was it recipes for facial cream and things like that <laughs> yes yeah and her sharp letters to Edward the fourth to her son uh, <laughs> yeah. and uh I couldn't get enough of them. <laughs> but also, I, I think the, the grief could come over as well when she was trying to, uh, to mm. patch up quarrels. And yes, it seemed to it seemed to fit. But no, I wasn't thinking about the Pastons. Um, I don't know when I decided to write them. It must have been quite shortly after. But I think it was because they were so uppermost in so many comments about the Wars of the Roses. And uh, I managed to get uh, a, um, a copy of, of all the letters together. 
And so I thought, right, here we go. Let's see what we can do. And they were just as enjoyable. Yeah. Have you got a favourite pasta? Um, two of them, two of them. Margaret, of course, has <laughs> to be there. Uh, and it's the, the women, of mm. course. Um, she kept a tight hold on everybody. Her husband, her sons, <laughs> her family, the priest, who she fell out with in the end. <laughs> and she was a true multitasker in modern jargon. She could manage so many things at one and the same time and had to, because often she was left to deal with, with affairs when... Uh, her husband and sons were in London. Mm. So were the letters of a, a sort of female nature, just about family affairs and children? Well, no, they weren't. They were far more complex. She covered everything. Bitter domestic quarrels, of course. Disobedient daughters, disobedient sons, who she couldn't uh, bring into line. But also family legal disputes, the ownership of Caister Castle and what they should do about it. Scandals, of course. And always at the end, when she could, she added the usual shopping list because her family were in London and her complaints were <laughs> that in Norwich she couldn't buy the things mm. that she wanted as cheaply or such good quality. And so uh, it, she covered everything. And occasionally there are some personal uh, detail which really make you um, sit up and, and, and think, yes, this is a woman involved in everything. When she was pregnant... She wrote to her husband, John, that she needed a new girdle. And in it, she said, I have grown so elegant, elegant notice, she's full of irony, is Margaret, <laughs> that I cannot fit into any of the waistbands or girdles that I have, all except one. Please send me a new one. Well, John didn't, or as far as we know. And so she writes again. <laughs> um, I do not have a girdle, will you? <laughs> we don't know whether she ever got it and what the quality was. <laughs> the, the letters, sadly, uh, you know, die a death. And another one, John had sent her hats for her three younger boys. And she writes to him, they are too small. Send me three more. And again, whether he ever did, we don't know. But he gets the sharp end of her tongue uh, of these uh, what are domestic problems. But outside that, she was a woman of great courage too. Her manner of Gresham in, in Norfolk was taken over by one of the local thugs. And uh, she went there and took over a local house to see what was happening with her manor house where he'd installed himself and was holding parties, quite frankly. Um, and she decided to keep an eye on him. She refused to leave. The local uh, uh, guy with his, his forces came and surrounded at the house where she was with just a few of the Paston menfolk. They were armed, mind you, but not terribly well. And in the end, they demolished the house round her ears and she would not leave. And in the end, they, they carried her out on the chair she was sitting on. She complaining bitterly <laughs> and placed her in the garden, more or less, while they demolished the rest of the house. In the end, she had to flee uh, for her freedom, perhaps for her life. But it shows the calibre of this woman, how courageous she was, how resilient. Mm. And uh, uh, they got the... the, the estate back in the end but in a very bad way but that's margaret and so you have to admire her mm. but the other one and i think everybody has to, to to like her was marjorie bruise who married one of the johns one of the sons a young woman and she's the woman who wrote the first valentine letter <laughs> she and john john three as they called him they fell in love it's the one true love story of the whole paston story 
But marriage was difficult because of getting mm. a dowry for her from her father. She was a younger daughter, so it was difficult. Gentry family, but money, you know, he was a bit keen on where he spent it. And Margaret couldn't get enough money for her son to set him up in a house of his own. And so it looked as if the marriage would die a death simply because they couldn't all agree on the terms of it. John was keen on the marriage, <laughs> but typical Paston could see the problem of land and the dowry. But um, Marjorie wanted him. She wanted him and her, her husband. And so she wrote, my most honourable and dearly beloved Valentine. And she must have thought, if this doesn't make an impression on him, nothing will. And she said, if you love me, as I truly believe you do, you will not leave me. My heart commands me to love you truly above all earthly things forevermore. I am not in good health in body or in heart, nor will I be until I hear from you again. And the result of that was that John got in touch with her again. And in the end, she signed it. By your valentine, Marjorie Bruce and the family came to terms and they got married. Mm. But another woman very much cut in the past and cloth. And of course, she takes over when Marjorie dies and she doesn't write mm. as much, but she held the family together too. So two wonderful past and women, both of them by marriage, by the way. They both came into the past and family. What's interesting is that the things they're asking their husbands about, the things they're talking about, are matters which which resonate with us now in the 21st century. You know, you get you go into London. Can you get me a so and so? You know, it's not rocket science. It's not different. It's not some alien place, is it? The no, 15th it isn't. century. No. Yes, it's, no. It's, that's astonishing, really, and to have that record. I mean, Margaret would say, I need salt and spices and mustard. Um, will you please set them? Just the sort of things that we would write a shopping list for. Mm. Uh, and clothing, um, good, good quality clothing, but yeah. cheap for the young boys who were growing fast. Uh, and she didn't want to spend too much on good clothes that they wouldn't be able to wear a year ahead. Uh, so, yes, it, it, it's mm. no different. Yeah, yeah. And that, and that it's, it's, it dears it to us as well, in a way, doesn't it? They're real. They're real people. Aren't yes. They? Yes. Mm. Lovely. I was going to ask what attracted you to the Paston story, but I think that is the answer, isn't it? They're real people. You're getting a glimpse into people from 500 years ago. Yes. And they the, the, the whole story, it's full of relationships and um, negotiations and buying and selling and keeping on the good side of people who matter and being anxious when, on the, when they're on the bad side mm. of people who will, can be their enemies, if you like. And in the, the Wars of the Roses, of course, it was very difficult for them. They, they kept their heads down for the most part uh, because that was of benefit to them as a family. They were lucky in that the uh, battles missed their lands that they were elsewhere mm. in England, so they weren't fought mm. over uh, and destroyed in that sense. But the problem was that uh, various members of the uh, the magnate class had their eye on Paston mm. territory, uh, and so they had to hang on to it the best they could and perhaps get a, a patron of their own who could stand up for them in the courts or with some physical force, uh, you know, even if not a battle. Uh, and it's this that ma that makes them so realistic and yet, even when they are dealing with all these problems of running the estates and keeping them in one piece, <laughs> it, I mean, Agnes Paston, I love this quote. It's very short, but it shows exactly what she was like. Um, 
Agnes was the, the mother of John, Margaret and John. She wrote to her husband, William, I entreat you to buy for me two gold threads for my hair. Your fish ponds are doing very well. And I thought, how wonderful, you know, she's concerned about how her hair looks in society and with local uh, women of perhaps more importance in Norwich. But the fish ponds matter. One of the things we've talked about a lot on this podcast, no matter which bit of the Middle Ages we've been talking about, is family and the importance of family. And usually we've been referencing that with in terms of noble families or or higher status families than, say, the Pastons. And it's really interesting to hear of how they had to sort of work their way around the politics of those in the social class above them to keep what they had and to try and get rather more higher status and rather more land and, and so on. Uh, it, it's it's the same no matter what part of society you're in, really, isn't it? It is. Yes, that's right. I mean, the problem of Case to Castle was that the Earl of Norfolk had his eye on that and presumed that the Pastons would not be powerful enough to stop him. And, of course, um, the, the situation with the ruling family at the time is that they were not prepared to take on the Duke of Norfolk either, because, well, Henry VI was, was not the strongest of character anyway, and Edward IV had, had his own problems uh, with his brother of Clarence and with Warwick and so on. And so um, the support of the Duke of Norfolk to him was of vital importance. So when the Pastons contacted Edward, King Edward, and said, look, we're in in trouble here. Um, We need your support to make sure the castle stays in our hands. Edward is not prepared to do that. And that's the reason why the Duke of Norfolk besieged Caister Castle and took it over from the Pastons. And it drove the Pastons into finding um, uh, a patron. And they eventually found the Earl of Oxford, who perhaps saw the merit of the Pastons as an interesting family. And he said he would uh, support them and argue their case and give them some support uh, physically, if necessary. And the end result was not always good for the Pastons because when the Battle of Barnet raised its head on the at the horizon, um, Oxford was fighting uh, um, for Warwick against King Edward and he insisted that the Pastons joined him. And so the two Paston boys, John II and John III, had to go and fight the war. Um, And they'd steered clear of it, but now they could not and had to get their livery together and and turn up in battle. They ended up on the losing side, of course. And for a time, it looked as if uh, um, they would be accused of treason. The Earl of Oxford fled for his life to the continent, as anybody of any sense would. Uh, And the Pastons had to argue that they weren't really treasonable through courts. and uh, uh, John III was wounded, so he was a sympathetic character. Uh, he was wounded in his arm with an arrow. Uh, Edward forgave them in the end, of course. But it, they really had to dodge and dive, you know, to, to keep what there was theirs uh, and to stop others taking it from them. In the end, they got uh, to Castle back. But it changed hands about three or four times during these years until it was finally decided that it was theirs. Um, but yes. Uh, life was not easy for this middling class. <laughs> no, they could easily get caught. <laughs> but fascinating for us. Yes, they could easily get caught in the middle, couldn't they? Oh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> okay, well, actually, we, we, we've gone a bit 
uh, off piste with our questions. That's my fault because I keep asking different <laughs> questions. So we've talked about Caister Castle. It might be an idea to have a sort of the backstory of Caister Castle. Is that in a marriage of fortune? Well, the siege, the siege is in marriage. Yeah, of the siege is. Yeah, yeah. But getting it is in royal game. Royal game. Yeah. Sir John Fastolf was a family connection of Margaret through her mother's family. And he was well known, of course, a great soldier, uh, came back from uh, the wars with a fair amount of money uh, from uh, taking prisoners and uh, uh, making them pay, uh, pay for their release. And when he got back to England, he wanted to buy more land. And so he used John Paston, John Juan, Margaret's husband, at the courts to do this. And very, a very close association. And apart from buying land and buying inns of, in uh, London and a uh, house in London, he built Caister Castle from scratch, uh, built uh, like some of the uh, great fortresses in Europe that he'd seen. When he was getting into later years, uh, Sir John Fastolf made his will. And the main purpose of it was to sell off m most of the land, uh, pay his servants and those who he owed money to, and the rest of it was to pay for the setting up of a, a chantry, I suppose, a college, he called it, with a number of priests who would say prayers uh, forever for his soul and those of his family. So that was OK. And there were 10 people named who would ensure that this will was carried out. And John Paston was one of them. Now, <laughs> on his deathbed, mm. when he was alone at Caister Castle, with the Paston family with him, it is said that Sir John Fastolf changed his will and he made John Paston the sole uh, recipient of all the land. And he was the only one uh, named to ensure that the will was carried out and all the previous ones were promptly demoted. Well, you can imagine the comments from all those who had suddenly lost all their part in, in Fastolf's will. It was called the War of Fastolf's Will, as you can imagine. Who had been there when the, the will was changed on Fastolf's deathbed? The only one was John Paston mm. and the family <laughs> priest. John Paston argued that, yes, it was all genuine. Uh, he'd been there. He'd heard it. It had been written down by the priest. No, it had not been signed by Fastolf, and no, it didn't have his ring in the wax on it because it was still on his finger, but yes, it was all true. But what it did in the end was hand over Caister Castle and all the lands to John Paston and make him a whole batch of enemies who never gave up trying to get it back and made life very difficult for John Paston. And that's how they got Case to Castle. So a very dodgy set of circumstances from the beginning. Mm. And whether you would believe John Paston or not <laughs> in the changing of the will, I do not know, mm. because he was a, a very canny, uh, legalistic man. Uh, but that's how they got it. And of course, intent on keeping it because it gave them prestige and standing. Mm. But the Duke of Norfolk had other ideas. So that's how they got the land. Did Norfolk just want the castle or did he know of the, the complaints of others and, and was sort of supporting them? I'm sure he did. And so perhaps he realised that if he did take it to court, he might persuade the judges, the inns of court, that his claim was as good as anybody else's and that Paston shouldn't have it anyway. Mm. But in fact, he didn't take it to court. He just took an army and, and walked in. And there was a siege of a, 
a fairly brief one, about a month, um, because they didn't have the wherewithal to withstand him. But there was nobody to stop him. Because, as I said, the king was not prepared mm. to take issue with him because he, he knew which side his bread was buttered, and it was to keep Norfolk and all his um, land and his money and his, his forces on his side. The Pastons just didn't figure in the same way. Mm. You've written a few books with the Wars of the Roses as the background now. What attracts you to the period? As you know, I like writing about women, but I don't like it if they are simply onlookers within the male family. Mm. And so I like it when they have something to say and do about what's happening politically. Usually they do when the women are from the, the upper classes and they are much involved in court politics. But of course, the Wars of the Roses are a different matter altogether. And so Cecily and her turbulent family was one uh, and the Pastons the other. There is something to get your teeth into to see what they're doing on a, a national scale mm. uh, and what they thought about what was happening between various families. So I, I like it when women have got more to do than to sit at home and sew uh, altar cloths and, <laughs> and, and talk about recipes, if you like, when they are involved with their family and have a say in what happens to that family in the end. So that's why I, I like The Wars of the Roses, although I have abandoned them in the book I'm writing. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the, the women of The Wars of the Roses are very prominent on both sides. Yes. They're sort of fighting for their families or their sons or brothers or whatever in their own way I guess it's a kind of window on what women did anyway whether there was the Wars of the Roses going on or not they would be involved in a way that history has tended to cloud over yes in the past yes that they would have been discussing matters of importance with their husbands even yes. though those matters of importance might not have been sort of warfare they would have been involved in a way that is is not really that clear if you read the history books up to about the last 20 years or so. Yes, that's true. And one of the main threads mm -hmm. throughout the Paston story for the women is that of marriage, not just who they happen to fall in love with and, you know, if they got married or not, but the role of marriage in the history of, in the family history of, of these middling families and, and above. And there are a number of situations in the Paston story that are quite tragic and very very stressful for all concerned. One of them is Elizabeth Paston, who was Margaret's sister-in-law. She's John's John's sister. And she was expected to marry well, of course, and bring money uh, and, again, connections into the family. And her mother, Agnes, was very clear in her mind of the sort of husband she wanted. And she couldn't find one. There were perhaps up to 10 suitors in Elizabeth's early life, but none of them had sufficient income or sufficient demands on their estates from elsewhere in their own families to make them worthwhile. And the end result was that Agnes blamed her daughter, Elizabeth. She beat her physically. She almost locked her up so that she couldn't um, escape and make connections that were undesirable. She complained bitterly about Elizabeth being still in the household and getting under her feet and in her hair and that sort of thing. And in the end, she packed her off to London to stay with Lady Pole. Mm. This boarding out of young women was done quite often in the Paston family. And she sent her off to get her out of the house in, uh, in Norwich 
and hopefully she might find a husband in London with Lady Pole. Well, Elizabeth did. She married. She uh, married a, a man called Sir Robert Poynings, who was quite well known in, in uh, London circles and seemed to have a happy marriage, except that he was killed in the, the Second Battle of St Albans, which left her again with estates that were under, under threat from other family members and a young son. So she married again. She married a second, second time, Sir George Brown. And he was unfortunate enough to get involved with the men of Kent in the Buckingham Rebellion in the first year of Richard III's reign. He was captured and he was executed. And Elizabeth Poyning's son, Edward, fled for his life to uh, to Europe and uh, joined up with Henry Tudor. But it left Elizabeth with her mm. her estates mm. attainted, her son gone, her husband's dead, you know. Mm. Um, what sort of life did she lead in the end? It worked out quite nicely because Edward came back with uh, Henry Tudor and uh, became one of the movers and shakers at the at the royal court. And Elizabeth got the land back and uh, was recognised as as owner, and I suppose lived comfortably uh, in her in her later years. What she didn't do in her will was leave anything to her Paston family. So you do get the feeling that she bore a grudge for those early years and that she received very little help from the Pastons, you know, later on when she was in need. Uh, and so it was it was not a happy circumstance. And the other one that we tend to know about, the other marriage, was the, the Paston daughter who married the bailiff. Now, this one was Marjorie, who was uh, Margaret's daughter. They had a very able bailiff called Richard Kelly. He was clever. He was very able. He served them well. Uh, he was very loyal to them. And they fell in love and they wanted to marry. And the Pastons had no intention of allowing it because his family were shopkeepers from Framlingham, where they sold, and this was said you know, in, in a, a very sneering fashion, they sold mustard and candles. Um, so, you know, this was the lowest of the low. But <laughs> Marjorie and uh, Richard were determined, and so they exchanged personal vows of marriage without a priest, and they consummated it, and then they informed the family that they were, in <laughs> fact, married. Presented as a better complete. Well, you can imagine Margaret, you know, uh, and the, uh, the rest of the family, the horror, uh, the two, uh, the two uh, brothers of Marjorie. They took the matter to the Bishop of Norwich. To sort out. He didn't like it, but he had to accept that they had used the right words. They had proclaimed their desire to be man and wife at that occasion, and therefore they plighted their troth. Uh, and this was legal, if mm. you like. Uh, the church didn't like it, but they had to accept it. Mm. And he said, yes, the pastors would have to accept this, but the, the young couple would have to be married again, this time with a priest, properly, and have bans called and this sort of thing. Okay, things seemed to go well. But the Pastons banished poor Marjorie from the house, and they were not forgiving at all. The, the bishop had to find her a, a household that would take her in, in Norwich, until the proper marriage could take place, which it did eventually. And they set up house, we think, in, in Norwich, and uh, the young couple, Richard and Marjorie, had three sons, mm. and she died very young. She died when she was 28. We're not sure why, which is very sad. But what the letters do not tell us, and this is one of these awful uh, gaps, whether there was any reconciliation ever between Marjorie and her mother. Mm -hmm. 
we just don't know. You'd hate to think that they continued at loggerheads over this terrible marriage that, that the pastors had thought would do them no good socially at all. One thing we do know, which gives us hope, in Margaret's will, many years later, she left some money to the eldest of the three sons, uh, which suggests mm. that perhaps there had been a connection between them and she didn't forget them. Uh, but that's all we do know. They were very conscious of their status, weren't they? But you see that marriages were so important to keep uh, social connections and uh, the pastors did not want the, the women of, of Norwich looking down on them. Mm. <laughs> so that when the younger Paston daughter, called Anne, when she seemed to be casting an eye over another Paston servant, <laughs> that immediately set up a marriage with um, a son who was a gentry by now, from the Yelverton family. The Yelvertons and Pastons were not great friends, but they set up the marriage. And um, the Yelverton son said, no, he didn't want to marry her, but if the money was good enough, then he supposed he would have to. And we presume mm. that Anne had an unhappy marriage because he didn't want her. They had a son who died before he was a year old, and we have no evidence that there were any others in that marriage. So perhaps she was the pawn in the game, that she was married off well because of the problems with the other marriages, and they were determined that she she would keep the family end up, if you like. Very sad. You've talked about gaps a number of times, in, in because inevitably in, in so many letters over such a period, there are going to be gaps in what we know or what we can glean. Um, so when you're writing your novels, how do you approach those gaps? What do you try to do and what don't you try to do, perhaps? I would say I try not to make things up because if that's done too much, it becomes not historical fiction, but just fiction uh, and fantasy even. And so I try not to add too much, although, of course, you have to because the conversations have gone the intimacy of relationships has. And so that has to be put in place. And as long as it is realistic and relevant, and as long as it sounds right in my ear when I'm writing mm. it, then, then I don't mind doing that. But I am reluctant to change events round just for the sake of it, you know, being dramatic, if you like. Mm. Um, and I am reluctant to make too many changes in in people's lives. But after saying that, because of the gaps, there are things that really need to be done and sometimes lend themselves to being really dramatic. And one of them particularly, John Paston wrote to his mother. It's, it's, it's a lovely little thing. He wrote to his mother, Margaret, and said, I understand that my lady of Norfolk will be right glad to have you about her at her labour. I think you, that your being there with her would do good for my brother's matters. Now, it's a very enigmatic little statement, but the situation was this. The Duke of Norfolk had died unexpectedly, and his wife, the Duchess, was newly widowed and pregnant. They had one daughter only, and of course, she would be hoping desperately for a son. John, this is John III, uh, the younger of the two Johns. He had once worked in the household of the Norfolks and so knew them quite well. This is before they fell out over Case Castle. <laughs> he knew them quite well, and so... He thought it would be an excellent idea if his mother went along to Framlingham, the castle there where they were staying, and uh, be of use to the Duchess and perhaps talk to her about the problem of case to castle. Isn't this a typical male comment? There's the poor Duchess, uh, worried, <laughs> uh, widowed, 
anxious about a, an upcoming pregnancy and he thinks his mother should go along and say, now what about Case to Castle? <laughs> uh, how about coming to agreement on this? And it's a wonderful, and I thought, I've got to use this. We don't know whether Margaret ever went and we don't know whether they had a discussion about Case to Castle. But I thought it was too good to be true. Because what we do know is the baby was born, it was a little boy, and it died almost immediately. And so the, the heiress continued as, as a little girl, who was married, by the way, to the, the younger of the two princes in the tower. Mm, that's right, yeah. Yeah, yeah. it's, it's that, that, that marriage, yeah. And so uh, we don't know whether Margaret was there to give advice. Margaret, of course, with her own family of, uh, uh, what's it, uh, seven children, all who live to adulthood, would know mm. a lot about pregnancy and about uh, labour and such. Whether she went up, we don't know. But in the months after the birth of the baby, the Duchess finally agreed through the courts and she contacted the King, Edward, that Caister Castle should be returned to the Pastons and that legal documents should be given and that it should not be questioned again. Now, why she made that decision, we don't mm. know, but it's a nice thought that perhaps she and Margaret did discuss it. And it seemed a reasonable suggestion. And it, I, I enjoyed <laughs> writing the scene between the two women. A bit sharp, a bit compassionate, and in the end, mm. an agreement. And, and the tragedy mm. of the baby, of course. Couldn't resist. I know what you mean. It, there are some things which you get a nugget of information and you think, well, it's not out of place. It's not out of character. It doesn't somehow drag the story or the history in, a, in an odd direction. So no. it's justifiable to use it. Mm -hmm. Yes. I mean, the other one that is full of gaps is the elder John brother and his relationship with a, a young woman called Anne Hote. And they had another of these marriages where they took vows, per verba de presenti, and without a priest or bands or anything. And uh, mm. the marriage for him would have been exceptional in that she was first cousin to the Queen, to Elizabeth Woodville. And they seemed to be very much uh, enamoured of each other. He was a very flamboyant character and into tournaments and fine clothing and this sort of thing. And she was an ambitious young woman. And they took the vows and then suddenly everything cooled and John was not prepared to go ahead with it and make it public, if you like. Everybody knew that it had happened and the family did. And uh, in the end, Anne, Anne Hote became so anxious about this. I suppose she thought, I'll never get I'll never marry, I'll never have a family, I'll never be recognised as a married woman. And so she demanded an annulment. And John was very reluctant to do it because it would cost him too much money. <laughs> I mean, difficult bastards, you see. And uh, he said, um, it'll cost me a thousand ducats. I may get away with 200, but even that's too much, you know. But she must have, have continued to press him because in the end, after nine long years, uh, she got her annulment. And yet not long after, John died of the plague when he was in London. And we don't see them together mm. at all in those final years when they got the annulment and when he died. And I thought, for a novel, I can't just leave this as a blank page. Did she know that he died? Did she go to his funeral in London? Mm. Uh, did she go and um, weep over his tomb of things that might have been. And I decided there may be some element of emotion mm. there uh, because it's a novel and emotions are important in novels. Yes, yeah. And so I added a little to the end. What happened to poor Anne Holt, we have no idea.
Did she get married? Did she have her children? She vanishes from history, sadly, even though she was cousin to the Queen. What it does show is how powerful those vows were, that you couldn't sort of just forget about it and say, oh, well, we won't bother then. It, it counted, it mattered. Yes. And legally it mattered as well, that she couldn't marry. No. Well, yes, wasn't that the problem with Edward the, the Fourth and his first supposed marriage? Yeah. That the vows had been there. Yeah. And you, it, it counts it's, as uh, uh, adultery if you then marry again uh, without getting rid of the first vows. Yeah, so the past and suffered too. <laughs> Right, so you said earlier, or alluded to, about that your new project isn't in the Wars of the Roses. No. So no. where are you? <laughs> well, I've hopped across country from Norfolk back to the Welsh Marches, mm -hmm. and I've moved from 15th century to the early 1300s. Uh, and because I live in Mortimer country uh -huh. and live near Wigmore and Ludlow, and castles such as that, I'm writing a, a Mortimer uh, story. And it is based on, of course, Roger Mortimer, the first Earl of March, notorious for taking the crown. Well, he wasn't king, but taking the power for Edward II. And of course, uh, the fairly flamboyant affair with the Queen, Isabella. And I decided to write it as I would from the point of view of Roger's wife, Joan de Jonville. Oh, excellent. A very mm. important heiress in her own right. Mm. And what she would uh, feel about the whole uh, situation and how she would react to, to what happened. It was a very successful marriage to begin with. Um, mm. They travelled together the, uh, into Wales, to Ireland, where lots of estates were, and back again. Uh, Twelve children, all who mm. lived to adulthood. Um, there seems to have been a good connection between them. When uh, Roger went into exile because of he raised arms against Edward, of course. Joan was imprisoned for three years, approximately. Their children were locked up too. She was mostly in Skipton Castle, um, a little time down in, in Hampshire. And then when she was released uh, and Roger came back and all and the children were released too, all would seem set for a happy reunion. Uh, she learned that, of course, he was in a relationship with the Queen and... The humiliation of it for her, it must have been the ignominy of mm. it. Uh, and how did she cope with that for the rest of, uh, of Roger's life and, and for what was demanded of her? Uh, like the marriage um, uh, celebration that was held at Ludlow Castle, where the Queen was invited to, and Joan had absolutely no intention of giving up her rooms or her position as Chatelaine of the castle to a woman she considered engaged in adultery with her husband. Uh, and so, you know, it's got some great scenes and some uh, mm. thoughts in it, great emotions. And so that's my next one. At the moment, it's gone to copy editing, so it will be out next February. Oh, brilliant. I look forward to that. Joan often gets overlooked yes. because it's Roger and Isabella's story. Yes. It's going to be nice to see her at the centre stage. Yes, she, she deserves it, her role in, in it. Uh, and uh, not always a happy one, but she, she must have been a woman of great mm -hmm. resilience, I think. How about in terms of research? Is there much about her that you were able to find? In her own right? No, uh, no. Of Joan, uh, there isn't. We we know uh, something about her background and about her uncle, and um, who was uh, a, a figure to be uh, to be reckoned with. Mm -hmm. uh, and her sister. I mean, she had two sisters who were packed off to a convent 
so that the whole inheritance would go to Joan, mm. which shows mm. just what could happen in families. You know, yes. it, they didn't want it split between the three of them, so two of them were then this sort of thing. Uh, but no, we don't know a great deal about her. Uh, it's sketchy. Uh, we do know uh, sometimes where she is uh, and uh, situations like when she's in prison and, and the... Um, uh, the quality of the imprisonment, that sort of thing. Mm. But otherwise, it has to be written from her point of view, but with the politics all coming from her sons and from her husband. Mm. So that's what I've done. We'll have to have you back to talk about that when uh, when the book comes out. We'll keep it in mind. I'll write it down. <laughs> we'll get into it after Christmas. Yes. <laughs> it hasn't a cover yet, but it has a name. It's called A Court of Treason. Oh, excellent. Sounds good. I wish I'd thought of that title. oh i know titles are difficult aren't they i know Uh... well thank you very much Anne. it's been absolutely fabulous fabulous talking with you Mm. i've enjoyed it and thank you for the invitation to join thank you so much it's been brilliant and such a fascinating family it's nice to have such an insight into them my pleasure it's lovely chatting with people about their own research especially when you do so much research it's nice to be able to explain the research behind the box for people to understand how much goes into it. Yes, yes. In fact, the the pastons, in a sense, were the easy ones because it's all there, Mm. written by them. And so, yes, you have to search out what other people are doing, but their words and their involvement is, you haven't to look far for it. Yes. Thanks so much, Anne O'Brien. And the titles of the books were The Royal Game and A Marriage of Fortune. Sounds great. I've enjoyed being with you. Thank you very much. All right. Well, that was a fabulous conversation. Thank you very much to Anne O'Brien. Do join us next time when Derek and I will be looking into the white ship disaster. I've been Sharon Bennett Connolly. And I'm Derek Burks. And we look forward to joining you again next time. Or you joining us again next time. (laughs)